Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevX podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver? We've really seen that. Giving people a larger amount of money allows them to really invest in their livelihoods, make, make good decisions about how they could um, develop in the future, and we think is Lump sums might be really exciting in the loss and damage space as well. If there's one thing that nearly everyone involved in the climate movement can agree on, it's that they need more money. There are huge gaps all over the climate finance landscape. Not enough money to help lower income countries shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Not enough money to help them adapt to a changing climate. Not enough money to help people already facing the destructive impacts of climate change. But climate finance can mean different things to different people. And it can take different forms. We might be talking about grants or loans, or public funds used to spur private investment, or philanthropic money. When it comes to different kinds of finance that development donors might consider, there's also a very simple option. What about cash? Yolanda Wright is the Vice President of Partnerships at GiveDirectly, the organization that is perhaps most closely associated with the argument that direct cash transfers are an underutilized and often elegantly simple tool for helping people. And there's no reason to think that isn't also true for people on the front lines of climate change. This interview was conducted by my colleague, Kate Warren. Here's their conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. No worries, my pleasure. So we're here at COP28 in Dubai. And the conference this week kicked off with an announcement about loss and damage fund. Um, I think many people are expecting to hear the news at the end of the conference, so it's welcome to hear it at the beginning. Um, but there's still a lot of conversation about how there's a huge divide between what is needed and what we have pledged for climate finance. And I'd love to hear your thoughts from Give Directly about how you see cash transfers fitting into that overall ecosystem of climate finance. Um, Give Directly think that cash can play a huge part in addressing the climate challenge that faces us in all sorts of different aspects of it, actually, which we can dig into. But if we're talking about the loss and damage fund, for example, I think it's um, incredibly important to vulnerable countries and vulnerable households, particularly lowest income households who 
have done the absolute least to contribute to this problem and are often facing the really tough uh, frontline conditions of extreme events that you know, maybe like literally washing away their homes, damaging their crops, or, or potentially droughts that are meaning they can, can no longer continue their normal livelihoods. Those households need to see some of that finance really reaching them. And that's one of the great things about the Give Directly model. We, we provide cash directly through mobile money generally to households and we give it unconditionally and people then have the choice and the dignity of, of spending the money in the way that they see fit. And we really feel that at least part of the loss and damage fund should be delivered in that direct in that direct way. And are you seeing broad consensus on this and you know, different governments, other donors, private sector philanthropies that are making pledges and contributing? Do you see them exploring these cash transfer models or is there still some work to be done? I think there's still quite a lot. There's a really wide range of opinions at the moment about how loss and damage finance should be organized and spent and delivered. Uh, at the moment, the interim organization that's going to be managing it is the World Bank. And one of the things I'll say about the World Bank is they really understand the evidence about cash transfers. In fact, in middle and low income countries, they're one of the biggest funders of social protection. And for those who don't know what that term means, it includes a wide range of policies that government use to protect citizens, but can include things like regular cash transfers for low income families, child benefits, pensions. And the World Bank really knows well how those things make a difference in addressing the vulnerabilities of households in normal times and also how they could step up and be adapted to deal with climate shocks. And one of the things that um, you know, Give Directly is looking at and supporting in a number of countries is how to use social protection systems or improve social protection systems so that they're more um, ready to respond to shocks, maybe even provide finance in advance of shocks to really help anticipate shocks and help families prepare and cope, and then potentially also to use them for loss and damage. But one of the things that we're innovating with at Give Directly is also larger lump sum transfers that again are a little bit less well known in the development sector. Not so many people are using this approach, but we've really seen that giving people a larger amount of money allows them to really invest in their livelihoods, make make good decisions about how they could um, develop in the future. And we think as lump sums might be really exciting in the loss and damage space as well. And how are you measuring the effectiveness and impact of this? Well, Give Directly, you may know, or those listeners who don't know, is, is a little bit obsessed, obsessed with evidence. Um, we're obsessed with two things, really. One is like the, the great potential of digital uh, money to kind of reach people in need and to target more effectively and more quickly. And the other thing is we're obsessed with is evidence, evidence of what works. And so we've funded or worked in collaboration with independent researchers to do a number of things called randomized control trials. And this is where you literally test one approach against another or against a control group which don't get that treatment and, and look at what the impacts are and really study the economic benefits, how it affects the household's income levels, etc. And we've seen some really incredible results from these um, kind of lump sum cash transfers that we think are really applicable in the climate space that really help families to build resilience to shocks, to invest in different types of livelihoods and even do things that are really important but maybe other donors might not think about like improving your housing. We've been giving lump sums in countries like Malawi and Rwanda and we're seeing that households spend quite a proportion of that money, sometimes 20 to 30% on improving their homes 
And we see that that's incredibly important in the climate space. So for example, Cyclone Freddy brought six months of rain in just six days earlier this year in Malawi. And the households that had been given a lump sum before that cyclone struck had, had strengthened the structures of their house, had like provided maybe concrete floors, improved the roof, steel roofing rather than thatch. And those households withstood the extreme weather event, withstood the rain and were still there afterwards. That's an incredibly important thing in terms of helping households adapt to climate change. But also we've seen people testing and trying out new agriculture methods, more resilient um, crops, things like um, how to sort of preserve soil fertility using mulching, those kind of things that help keep moisture in the soil or help you to cope if, if there's less rain than you expected. And as you know, climate change is really changing weather patterns in a lot of places. So when the rain comes, it comes much heavier and more intensely, and then it may stop or there may be long periods of drought. So we're, we're expecting farmers to think ahead and adapt and try new technologies. But if you don't give them cash, it's really hard for them to take a risk and change their behavior. So we're seeing that if you provide those lump sum cash transfers, farmers and households and, and you know, women it also in other types of businesses will take risks, will diversify their income sources. And that's a really important part of coping with climate change and, and adapting and becoming more resi resilient. Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank President Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for the World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. Critics or maybe skeptics of cash transfers might say, well, how do you trust that they're going to spend the money on the right things? You know, what if it's to get your nails done or your hair done? And you know, you talked a little bit about the dignity of cash transfers. So what would you say to those skeptics who are concerned about you know, where the money will actually go? Well, the first thing I'd say is, is really do look at the evidence. These randomized controlled trials that we've done um, can all be found on our website and, and you can even read the technical papers if you love reading about standard deviations. But if you look at those, you can also see the stories of people and what they've done. And, and really, we see from the evidence that people are no more likely to buy alcohol or cigarettes or, or waste the money than they would have been doing anyway. And, and we see really these incredible investments. And, and you can see even sometimes two, five, ten years on, the long-term impacts of a cash transfer on how people are coping, we look at things that make a real difference in social capital as well, like more children attending school for longer. Um, we see things like improved nutrition and dietary diversity that we know is critical, especially when children are young, that they have a good nutritious diet. That affects their 
brain development and their whole future, right? Their whole future potential. So I would encourage people to just look at the evidence. It's easy to sort of um, be skeptical, but I think, you know, if I could take everybody out to, to visit some of our programs, that would be the best thing, but obviously that's not possible and totally inefficient. <laughs> um, but I think please do look at the evidence and look at the stories both. I think I always find that people are convinced a little bit by evidence, but also mostly by hearing stories of what people have done. And we've even got some great videos available online as well that people can just actually listen to what the recipients are doing themselves. Yeah, and I guess uh, other skeptics might say, well, yeah, this is great for in a crisis for short-term relief, but is it really contributing to the long-term sustainable development or systemic development that might really be needed? Um, you mentioned a little bit about some of the long-term effects that you see through your uh, measurement. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see this fitting into you know, long-term systemic change? So, I mean, cash is amazing, but it isn't everything. <laughs> and I do think there's a lot of long-term systemic changes that are also needed. Um, and we would, never, you know, we would always say that like cash can be transformative, but if you want to send your child to school, you do need a school, right? And we've seen great evidence that cash improves school attendance, but ultimately you still need a good teacher who's well-trained and enthusiastic and, and wants to support that kid's learning. So of course we need better systems, public services, infrastructure, all those kind of you know, wider systems. You, we also need things like gender equality, right? Those things are part of the, pro, you know, part of the process of the enabling environment for people to get out of poverty. Cash contributes and supports, but doesn't do everything. But I would say that there is something deeply empowering and um, anti-colonial, whatever, if that's a word, I think it is, um, about just giving people cash. I think there's been a tendency of development experts to spend a long time designing and consulting on programs and deciding how best donor money should be spent. And I think really if we look at the evidence, people living in those situations know their local markets, know what products local people might buy, know what their own skills and capabilities are and really probably are best placed to make their own decisions about how they invest their money. And I really would say, you know, people should be asking for certain types of projects, you know, would cash be better than the other intervention? And really asking that question. And we've done that actually. We were supported by USAID to do a number of benchmark studies where we took certain traditional types of interventions and then used the exact amount of money spent on that intervention per person to just give the people money directly. Those benchmarking studies, again, are available on, website, on our website. And perhaps slightly depressingly for people who've worked in development for 20 years like me, um, Oftentimes the results are better by just giving people the cash. So I'm not saying it solves everything, but I definitely think it's worth really considering when you're, you know, for example, if you're a donor looking at how you spend your climate finance, really think, do I know best how to spend this cash or do people on the ground who are actually facing these climate impacts know best themselves? And should we be giving at least part of this money directly to those people and giving them the power and the choice to spend it as they see fit? Yeah, I was on a panel with Ambassador Black Lane from Antigua Barbuda this week, and she was talking about the power of cash in her community, who's really very much impacted by climate crisis now. Um, and she was saying, you know what, so what if somebody spends it on getting their hair done or nails done? If that's what they need to feel resilient and strong that week, that's going to get their mind in the right headspace to, to grapple with this, who are we to decide 
what's best for them. Um, and I thought that was a, an interesting insight that I think gets to your, you know, the anti-colonial nature that these are humans too that deserve joy and happiness, not just survival. <laughs> um, Absolutely, and I think in general, I mean, you won't meet you won't meet someone who's better at budgeting with their money than somebody who lives on a low income. You just won't meet someone who's better. So, you know, and we've seen in some of our programs that people spend things, spend money on things like mattresses. And a pure economist might say, well, what's the economic return on a mattress? Why didn't they invest in a, a bicycle or a barber business? But they might have done both, right? Number one, they might have done both. And if you give a lump sum, you enable people to do things like both meet their most immediate needs, like that you know, the life-saving thing of like, you know, I need to feed my kids, I need to look after my family right now, but also invest in longer-term things. But also, why shouldn't people buy a mattress and sleep well at night? I mean, you and I would want to do that. And actually, if you think about productivity, you know, a good night's sleep is like one of the most fundamental things in enabling us to go out the next day and, you know, hustle and, and do our day's work. So I really... You know, I, I think that's part of our fundamental philosophy is not to try and second guess what people need, but really just to, to give them the money and allow them to make the choices. And, and that's why I would advocate for larger amounts as well. So you mentioned earlier, like cash is very often used in a more humanitarian context and it's kind of well accepted in the humanitarian sphere, right? So a number of humanitarian actors now do cash transfers, but they're often really small survival amounts. And, and what I think is needed to address things like loss and damage, but also to address like long-term adaptation is, is larger amounts that really allow people to invest and, and change their behaviors, take, take higher levels of risk, right? And if you're just drip feeding them survival amounts, you're not gonna be able to like change, change people's risk appetite, right? Which is basically what you're trying to do. You're trying to help people to, to look longer term, to try different options, to kind of expand their range of, of livelihoods options. And I think that that's why I would argue that like we should push the boundaries a bit and move out of the cash is just a humanitarian survival thing and say, actually, if we invest more, people can get a lot more out of it. What are some of the political barriers to that? And uh, I know you're here at COP for a short time, but you have a broader team on the ground. Are you seeing uh, more openness in some of the conversations you've been having? And you know, what are some of the roadblocks you face in expanding this? I think probably one of the biggest roadblocks is if you want to give people more money, <laughs> then you need to like raise a lot of money. And the, slight, the slightly scary thing about cash transfers for a lot of donors is how quickly it ends up being quite a lot of money. But I would challenge you with saying, you know, lots of other programs cost quite a lot of money as well and don't have the evidence base that cash transfers do. So I think I have to say one of the roadblocks probably is making sure that we look at adequate amounts of funding to do this and that we kind of recognize that, yeah, if you want to support people, we should be giving them not tiny survival amounts of money, but potentially larger amounts. So that's, that's a big blockage. I think there is still this mindset, and it, I don't want to call it colonial, but there is a still a mindset that experts know best, that the kind of people in capital cities know best how to design things and how to create complicated funding mechanisms that, you know, flow in different ways and then another bunch of experts at the national level will decide and another bunch of experts at the local level will decide and I think that that mentality is very strongly ingrained in the development and climate sector that the expert mentality I wonder too if some of that is self-preservation self-interest right we have a huge system set up to distribute humanitarian or foreign aid there's 
NGOs, that their, their livelihood and staying in business uh, you know, depends on being able to program out this money. Um, so I wonder how much of that is uh, organizations that feel like they still need to be involved because they need to justify. And I mean, there is a real efficiency argument, right, for cash where you don't have to have all this administrative overhead and passing down through multiple organizations to program out. Um, so I would love to hear what you think about that and also the you know, efficiency angle of cash transfers. Well, Give Directly is kind of obsessed with efficiency and uh, again, we, we try to be really transparent about it and talk about how our average you know, 90 cents of every dollar will be directly in the hands or through the mobile uh, bank account in the, on the mobile phone of, of the recipients that we're trying to support. But I, you know, I will say there's still overheads even with the Give Directly model and especially if you're trying to make sure that you mitigate risks of fraud or mitigate risks of safeguarding risks, etc. I don't want to say that it's possible to do this with zero transaction costs because it, it isn't, especially if you're trying to be really accountable to your recipients and to donors. There's a there's a level of support, and we run we run um, phone lines in every country. So if people don't get their money on time or don't get the amount they expected, they can ring up free of charge. And you know these things are there are overheads, but generally cash transfers are a very efficient and effective way to get money to people. And I think it does challenge the development model. I think it does. Um, I think the system's been quite clever in sort of absorbing cash transfers into the existing model and not really shaking things up. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. been quite interesting to see that happening over the years. But, um, but I do also think that there's a, there's a yes and as well. I mean, I do think we do need clinics. We do need schools. We do need well-trained professionals to support people so I, I don't think it's I don't think cash is just gonna wipe away the entire development sector at all um, but I do think it does challenge it does challenge the sector and and I think it's a good challenge the world is facing a range of health threats from an increase in disease outbreaks to the health impacts of climate change. I'm Janelle Ravelo, Senior Global Health Reporter for DevEx. Every Thursday, we bring you exclusive news and insights on how the health sector is finding solutions to these challenges in our free weekly newsletter, DevEx Checkup. Visit devex.com newsletters to subscribe. Uh, I'd love to, so you talked a little bit about being able to predict where money is needed in advance. And um, I think you've had some examples of that recently where you've been able to really um, you know, mitigate some real harm from different crises because you got the cash to people before they really even needed it. Um, there's a lot of talk about you know, AI globally and also here this week at COP. How are you thinking about AI being a tool to help better target and direct cash? So we've been using it a lot, and actually I was on a panel talking about this just today. I think there's huge potential. So even once you've got people convinced that cash is a great idea, you have to think practically how you get it out to the right people at the right time. And very few countries have comprehensive, universal social protection schemes that like reach every household that you can just then press a button and provide additional cash in the, in the face of a shock or in advance of a shock. So that's where tech can come in. And I think really leapfrog what in the history has been quite a slow process of like 
doing surveys and gradually registering households one by one through sort of massive mobilization efforts. Those things take a lot of time, can be very faulty. What we've been doing, in fact, actually we did a great innovation. COVID has spurred a lot of innovation because COVID meant that donor agencies and, and implementing agencies couldn't get out and meet people face to face. So we were pushed to think, well, how can we use things like mobile money to reach people quickly? And uh, Give Directly was really lucky to work with the government of Togo and um, University of um, Berkeley University in California to look at how we could use um, AI to look at mobile phone records, for example. And I will mention that it's really important to have good data privacy when you're doing this kind of thing. But with the right agreements and the right data privacy in place, we were able to use kind of AI to look at 100 different data points around phone use, even things like, did you turn your phone on often? Because if someone keeps their phone off most of the time, they probably don't have electricity at home or struggle or have to pay for individual charges. How often you charge up your SIM card? Do you do it $1 at a time or $5 at a time? How many people are you phoning? How many phone towers are you pinging off? And all of those things can be used as a proxy set of indicators for how well off you are. And then we did ground truthing as well to look at like, what did the mobile phone data tell us about where people were living in poverty and then ground truthed it. And also we used satellite imagery to try and select lowest income households. And through all this like satellite data, mobile phone data, and then ground truthing, we were able to target really effectively huge number of people um, during the COVID pandemic and send them direct cash transfers. Um, we've also used satellite imagery and predictive analytics around extreme weather events to try and send anticipatory cash in Mozambique. That was one of our examples. And so I think that, you know, and again, overlaying all these different types of data and coming out with more realistic predictions about where people might be affected, I think has amazing potential to really scale up and get, get cash out to where it's needed. And then slower time, we then can work with the government to say, how do we now register these people onto the long-term social protection system? I will mention a couple of things though, because people always say, but what about people who don't have phones? And actually in Nigeria, we, where we worked on a, a cash transfer for um, emergency response after floods, 90% of people didn't have mobile phone, mobile phone, mobile money. And so we did have to do pre-work there. So we didn't actually get to do this in advance of the flood. It ended up being post the flood. But you do have to do some work where people don't have mobile money yet. But it's incredible. Africa's a very young continent. Huge numbers of people are very young. So once we actually got mobile phones to people, they found it quite easy to find family members who helped them to do the registering for mobile money and figure it out. And then at the end of the work, about 94% of people said it was very easy to figure out how to use mobile money and receive their payments and cash out. So I think that even in places where mobile money isn't so available, we could be supporting that penetration, helping people to get digitally included, right? And then they benefit in the long run, right? Because they've got their own bank account then, they've got a mobile phone. And, and once you've got people registered, you do need to do that work in advance. You can then very quickly get cash out. And in one of our um, programs, people enrolled remotely, so they were able to send We've sent them a message saying, you've been selected, would you like to receive some cash um, to support you in advance or uh, after this disaster? People then could reply, there was various Q&As back and forth, and then once they were verified, within 40 seconds the fastest payment was made directly to the people, from the 40 seconds from their last text in. So I just think this is a, there's an enormous potential to leapfrog sort of old and slow systems and to register far more people for mobile money and then to get, get money out to them 
ideally in advance. There's a huge amount of evidence that cash in advance of a disaster is a really cost-effective thing to do. People can save their livestock, harvest their crops early, move their valuables to higher ground, protect their homes, and then avoid the devastating losses that that extreme event might have had on them, and then really significantly reduce the cost of the, the clean-up and the disaster response. So I, I'm really passionate about scaling these um, efforts up that we've seen working already. And so, again, we're here at, at COP28. There you know, is a lot of, again, skepticism around convenings like this and the utility of them. How have you found your experience so far? Um, what do you see succeeding? Where would you like to still see more work done? And you know, what will you be leaving here with and thinking, OK, this was worth our time to be here? Well, the COP is turning into kind of a strange combination of both a kind of formal UN negotiation process where there are formal sessions with representatives of the governments of the world discussing and agreeing text and decisions and a kind of climate trade fair where there's just a huge amount of networking and sharing of ideas and I haven't you know I'm not here as a government representative I'm here as a kind of implementing partner and so I haven't I can't really comment so much on how the negotiations are going but I will say I do think it was exciting that things like the loss and damage fund were announced and pledges were announced so early in the process. I think that was a really good and hopefully promising sign, right, that things will get done here. But I do think that the opportunity to be in the same room as colleagues from all around the world, share ideas, kind of private sector, development sector, humanitarian sector, climate, all together is an exciting opportunity and, and I know that the world probably looks and thinks wow all those people flying in and all the emissions and that this hypocrisy and I think we should all be thinking quite hard about when and why we travel long distances I do think that's important but I also think that the world is facing a massive challenge with the climate crisis and no no single solution even cash is going to fix everything right and we do need to be making sure that we create these spaces and it has been an amazing opportunity to network with a really wide range of people from around the world so i really appreciate that and i think yes we can all network remotely but every now and then face-to-face -face time and that real human connection is incredibly important well i'm so glad we were able to connect face-to-face -face here and thank you so much for your time Yolanda. my pleasure thank you very much Thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to, during, and after COP28. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X formerly Twitter, at AlterIgo, or send an email to podcast at devx.com. Climate Plus is a podcast from DevX. Kate Warren was the interviewer for today's episode. It was produced by Meg Richardson and edited by Thomas Cherep. The series editor is Catherine Cheney. It's hosted by me, Michael Igo.